Hi there, Journey. How y'all doing today? Really good to be with all of you. Glad to hear that, especially if you're a guest. Really, really honored to be in the presence of God with you today. So we're going to wrap up this Onward, Stay the Course series today, fifth and final installment. But before we dive into that, we wanted you to hear this absolutely fantastic, moving, powerful song called Dirt. Give a careful listen to this, please. Took his wife within a lie I think I know the reason why Cause he was made of dirt Joseph's coat was full of pride The blood of goats won't wash you white If I was his brother, I'd lie And left him in the dirt Soon became the rock, and Paul would lead the Roman. 
see is that you can't see the dirt in me and all that I can see is you. Amen to that. Thanks, guys, so much. And you know what makes that song so awesome is the truth that's pregnant in it, right? Like, that's our story. There we are in the dirt, in the muck, in the mire, making a mess out of our lives. And what do you know? Along comes God. And he scoops us up out of that mess, out of the mud, out of the dirt. And then he sets our feet in a brand new place. And he washes us white as snow. And he says, you're new. You're brand new. And because you're new and because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can press onward. You can stay the course In particular, you can stay the course when it comes to things like honesty, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Press onward. Stay the course in honesty. Stay the course in truth-telling. By the way, a little aside here, a little commercial. Don't miss next Sunday. Whatever you do, don't miss next Sunday. What's going on in the world next Sunday? Yeah, church. Yeah, somebody said church. The Christian answer surfaces. Right, the little Super Bowl, right? And I, I know the game doesn't really matter because the Niners aren't playing. You know, there are these two no-name teams going to play in this game next Sunday. Uh, no 5 p.m., right? You remember that? No 5 p.m., just 9 and 11 gatherings. And we're working on some stuff that's very befitting of Super Bowl Sunday, so you won't want to miss that. And uh, this isn't going to be here because we want you to be, this gathering isn't going to happen, the 5 p.m. isn't going to happen because we want you to go Super Bowl. Gather up some people in your world, go hang out, watch the game, cheer the 49ers and uh, whatever, you know. Go Niners. Woo! Yeah. (laughs) We're talking about honesty and truth-telling today. Did you know that by age four, by age four, I got a four-year-old, little Gigi, cute as a bug's ear, she's four years old. But by age four, 90% of all children have grasped this concept called lying. Do you know that? And from four, it doesn't get any better as kids age, right? It only gets worse from four. 90% of kids grasp the concept of lying starting at age four. According to a study conducted by the University of Massachusetts just a handful of years ago, get this, 60 Six zero percent of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least one time. Hard and fast research. And even that number, though, makes it sound better than it really is. Because those people in that study who did lie, they actually told an average of three lies in that 10-minute conversation. And we're all church people, right? We're gathered in church. We're, like, doing the church thing. And so we sit here and we hear that and we insist we would absolutely be part of the 40% of people who don't lie, right? We wouldn't be in the 60%, not us, not me, never. And that's what the people in the study said too, not me, ever. But they recorded, video recorded all of those conversations. They watched those recordings back and they were shocked. The people were shocked at the number of times they lied in a little 10 minute conversation. Did you know that our parents get the worst end of our lying. If you are a parent, you get the worst end of the lying deal. According to The Day America Told the Truth, 86% of people lie to their parents regularly. I got a bunch of liars at my house. Right? Followed by friends, 75% of people regularly lie to their friends. 73% of people regularly lie to their siblings. 
69% of people regularly lie, get this, to their spouses. How's that going for you? Not very well. In general, people lie about things that aren't important, little things that they think will make them look better, make them appear more likable. For example, a British film rental company surveyed respondents and found that 30% of the people they surveyed lied about having seen the film The Godfather, right? Because everyone's like supposed to have seen The Godfather, but it's so long and so boring and It's like the movie you put in when you say you're going to watch a movie with your boyfriend or girlfriend and then you just like suck face through the whole thing. You don't actually watch the movie. No one's actually seen it. They just make out through the whole thing, right? Yeah, I've seen The Godfather. Sometimes people lie about things that matter too. According to one estimate, 40% of people lie on their resumes or in job interviews, 40% of people. There's a fantastic film called The Pursuit of Happiness. Have you seen this? movie. If you haven't, you ought to watch this movie. Will Smith plays a character named Chris Gardner. He's a man who has big dreams for him and his family. Dreams, though, that never quite seem to come together. Chris finally has a once in a lifetime opportunity to become a stockbroker. But first he has to land this grueling training internship. But he gets arrested while he's painting his apartment. He's forced then to spend the night in jail for having lots of unpaid parking tickets. Chris, therefore, has absolutely no choice but to run straight to his very prestigious internship interview in dirty, paint-covered, plain clothes. It's a bad day. Watch this and consider what you would do if you were in Chris's shoes. Mr. sitting out there for the last half hour trying to come up with a story that would explain my being here dressed like this. And, and I wanted to come up with a story that would demonstrate qualities that I'm sure you all admire here, like, like earnestness or diligence or team playing to something. And I couldn't think of anything. So the truth is, I was arrested for failure to pay parking tickets. Parking tickets? And I ran all the way here from the the Polk station, the police station. What were you doing before you were arrested? I was uh, painting my apartment. Is it dry now? (laughs) I hope so. Jay says you're pretty determined. Oh, he's been waiting outside the front of the building with some 40-pound gizmo for over a month. He said you're smart. I like to think so. 
And you want to learn this business? Yes, sir, I want to learn this business. Have you already started learning on your own? Absolutely. Jay. Yes, sir. How many times have you seen Chris? You know, I don't know. One too many, apparently. Is he ever dressed like this? No. No. Jacket and tie. First in your class? In school? High school? Yes, sir. How many in the class? Uh, Twelve. It was a small town. I'll say. But I was also first in my radar class in, in the Navy, and that was a class of 20. Can I say something? Um, I'm the type of person, if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you that I don't know. But I bet you what? I know how to find the answer, and I will find the answer. Is that fair enough? Chris, what would you say if a guy walked in for an interview without a shirt on? And I hired him. What would you say? He must have had on some really nice pants. <laughs> honesty. That, like, gut-level honesty, transparency. This is just what happened. Just says it like it is. And we all say that we highly value honesty when it comes to politicians and spiritual leaders, people in any kind of authority over us, a potential marriage partner, employees and employers, business partners, etc., etc. We highly value honesty, and yet statistics tell us the truth, that when the pressure is on, more often than not, a majority of people default to dishonesty. A majority of people lie. When the pressure's on, oh, it'll just make things easier. It'll make things go better. I'll be able to kind of wiggle out from underneath that. A majority of people lie. And we go like, well, what's the big deal if people lie? Everyone lies, or at least as statistics tell us, a majority of people do. What's the harm in a little fib, a little white lie every now and again? Who gets hurt by that? I'm going to ask for a brutally honest show of hands. How many people, how many of you, have been harmed because someone lied to you or lied about you? Show of hands right now. Yeah. Now, would you keep your hands up, please? Here's the harm in lying. Look around this room right now. This is the harm in lying right here. There's the harm. There's the fallout right there. That's the big deal with lying and dishonesty. People whose lives and reputations and character have been greatly harmed because someone chose, someone decided, I'm not going to tell the truth. I'm going to shade the truth, spin the truth, cover up the, whatever it is. Friends, honesty matters. It matters. And as we close out this series onward, we're talking about staying the course in character. What we know is that honesty and truth-telling form the very framework on which every other facet of character hangs. Do you get that? That is to say, you can be as courageous and you can be as enduring, you can be as disciplined, you can be as faithful as you can possibly be. You can pick any and all positive traits of character that you can possibly think of, but if we lack honesty, we lack the very core of everything that it is to have character. And the damage, the damage that lying causes, 
the hearts that get broken as a result of lies, the trust that gets torn to shreds because of lying, the atmosphere of cynicism that sets in because of dishonesty, friends, it's just not worth it. It's never worth it. And I can stand on this stage and I can talk about knowing all of this in my head and knowing all of this in my heart, and I do, and yet in my 41, almost 42 years of life, guess what? I've lied. My hands up. I've lied. I've stretched the truth. I've put a spin on something to make myself look better. I've exaggerated a dumb story that I didn't even need to exaggerate, but I did it anyway. I've lied. And you know what I find to be the most reprehensible thing about any lie that I've ever told in my entire life? It's how deeply damaging my lies and my deception is to the heart of my God. The only one who has ever only always told the truth. I can hardly even imagine how my untruth, how my lies, how my spin, how my exaggeration lands on the very heart of the one who has never ever even thought of telling a lie. The one who wants and longs and expects the exact same thing from every single one of us. What it must do to him just lays him out on the floor. I can imagine. There's a guy named King David. He was the king of Israel. And King David of Israel, as many of you probably know, he had quite a run of misbehavior. Adultery, deceit, murder, a bunch of other quite unbecoming traits. And King David of Israel had a moment with God when he just got like from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. He got, he grasped just how his trespasses, how greatly his trespasses had offended his heavenly father. A moment that's captured quite brilliantly in Psalm chapter 51. Listen and follow along if you will. Have mercy on me, O God, King David says. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night, he says. Against you, he's talking about God, and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You, God, will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just see king david of israel had just been found out the prophet had just confronted him for his abysmal behavior his deception his murder all of it has all surfaced and notice that king david of israel doesn't like try to wiggle out he doesn't try to shade the truth or squeak out a side door and try to get away with something he just says look your judgment will be proved right your judgment against me it's just it's accurate it's true and listen to what he says for i was born a sinner For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was born a sinner. That's all of our story. But you, talking about God, you, God, desired, here it is, honesty from the womb. You desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. God's expectation of every single one of us is honesty right from the womb, absolute honesty. Honesty, And there's this sense that while dishonesty causes pain and damage to people around us, much more than that, dishonesty, David says, is a great affront to our holy, spotless, perfect God. It offends him, ultimately. And you move a little further 
into the text to Acts chapter 5. There's this passage of scripture. It's caused no end of debate, discussion, dialogue, difficulty for those who have dared to wade into this very complex narrative, sought to understand what in the world is going on here. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Just by way of a little background, Acts is the record of the launch of the very first Christian church in human history. On the day of Pentecost, it's called 3,000, get that, 3,000 people crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ. There's 3,000 brand new followers of Jesus Christ in one day. It's spectacular. Thousands more right on their heels come to faith in Jesus. This time of explosive growth in the earliest church. And so with thousands and thousands of brand new Christians abounding in that first church, they got laser focused about a very few things. The first one was the apostles' teaching. The second one was fellowship, one with another. They broke bread regularly with each other, ate dinner. It's another way to say ate dinner around tables together, enjoying each other, doing life with each other. They got about the sacrament of communion, daring to pray bold prayers, asking God to supernaturally show up, and he did. Signs and wonders were commonplace in that first Christian church. The Bible tells us as well that God moved spectacularly in the hearts of the rich who were part of that church to care tangibly for the poor in the church as well as in the community. It was a beautiful thing. Racial divisions were demolished. Worship rose to heaven with never before seen passion. People were hungry. They were thirsty for God, hungry to serve God, hungry to be a part of his redemptive work here on planet earth. In short, get this, just about everything that could be going well in a church was and did in the first Christian church. This incredible season of God's favor being poured out until one day when one couple, one man, his wife, what'd they do? They lied to the leaders of that church. And that story is not soon forgotten. As a matter of fact, a couple of thousand years after it went down, look, we're still talking about it here and now. It's big. It's very, very big. Before we get to the text, let me keep setting this up for you just a little bit more. There's a guy in that church, the first Christian church, named Barnabas. And Barnabas notices that there's a whole bunch of people finding their way to faith in Christ in the life of that first church, and they were very, very, very poor. So poor, as a matter of fact, that they were unable to feed even their own families. That broke Barnabas' heart, crushed him, and he's a business guy, and his heart is just wrenched that kids and families are going hungry. He's going like, nobody should be hungry. And so Barnabas decides he's going to do something about hungry families in that first church. He looks across his expansive investment portfolio and he notices he's got a piece of property he wasn't using. He decides to sell it, giving the proceeds from the land sale to the church leader, all of it, instructing them, please use this money to feed all the hungry people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, finding their way into our church. It's a spectacular, very cool gift. Well, word of Barnabas' uncommon generosity to the church kind of got around that church a little bit. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Follow along. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. They're following in Barnabas' footsteps here. He, that's Ananias, brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming, that's the church leaders, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, they conspired together, they consented together, that they're going to keep the rest. 
They put it in the 401k maybe or in a savings account or stuffed it under a mattress. We have no idea, but they kept the rest. And then Peter said, Ananias, it's this moment of great discernment, spiritual discernment on Peter's part. Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or to not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away or for that matter, keep. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell on the floor and he died. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out and buried him that fast. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. See, they had agreed together, they conspired together. Yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband, they're just outside that door, and they're going to carry you out too. And instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in, saw that she was dead, they carried her out, buried her right beside her, right beside her husband, and great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Anyone else going like, whoa, whoa? I have a few observations about this pretty shocking text of scripture first. It's really quite fascinating to me how very much Ananias and Sapphira care for the poor. They really do care deeply for the poor. They're quite generous people. They don't have to sell that property. They don't have to give any of the proceeds to their church to feed and care for the poor. They didn't have to do any of that. All things considered, they're being downright sacrificial with their giving and they lied about it. They just lied about it. And we go, well, like, well, that's not that big of a deal, is it? No one got hurt in that transaction, so they kept a little of the money. That brings me to my second observation, which is exactly what Peter says to Ananias. He says what? You weren't lying to us, talking about the church leaders. You were lying to who? You're lying to God. That's exactly right. And when we lie or when we don't tell the whole truth or when we exaggerate or when we embellish, even just a little bit, sometimes we get it in our heads that we're just deceiving people. Call it like horizontal deception. But Peter goes like, no, no, no. Time out on that. That's bad thinking. At the end of the day, Peter says, our lying is about us deceiving God, not man. It's about deceiving God, not man. It's an affront to God way more than it's an affront to anyone else. It's not just horizontal deception. It's very, very vertical deception, an affront to God himself. And so Peter says these words, you were lying to God. And do you notice the thing that happens right when Peter says those words? They're the last words that Ananias ever heard in his entire life. You were lying to God, and bam, he falls over dead. It's unbelievable. I told you a couple weeks ago about my dad's dad, my grandfather, how he was living in Billings. He'd been rushed to the hospital. He wasn't doing so well, and then he rallied, and lots of you prayed, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Early last week, my dad calls me. He says, hey, Brian, grandpa's not doing well. He's still in the hospital, and he's got like a few hours, a few hours left. I was like, oh, dang it. 
doggone it. I happened to be in a meeting with someone in our church who was in the middle of their own deep personal crisis when I got that call from my dad. So I politely said, could I please be excused? I'm so sorry, but my grandpa, they were very, very kind. They excused me from the meeting. And then I drove like a bat out of somewhere over to Billings, made it to grandpa's bedside and spent the last few hours of his life right there by his bed with his sons and our extended family. And we spent a few hours saying goodbye to my grandfather, a terrific dad, a terrific husband, a terrific grandfather. And it was just this sad on one hand and quite joyous, right? It's this paradox thing for people who follow Jesus. Sad and joyous moment as grandpa breathed his last breath. And grandpa was awake pretty much right up until his very last moment. He knew very well who we all were. When I walked into that room, his eyes lit up. He couldn't say very much, but he knew it was me. He was trying to say my name. He was trying to say, hi, Brian, I'm so glad. I was like, Grandpa, just relax. It's it's okay. He knew what was going on, and he could hear every single thing we were saying. And so we spent a few hours, the last few hours of his life, telling him how very much we love him, how very much we were going to miss him, how great his run almost 92 years had been, And we said, Grandpa, we're going to see you one day in heaven. We've got heaven together forever. Someday you're going to beat us there, but we're going to be along eventually. Way to go, Grandpa. We love you, Grandpa. We're all going to miss you, Grandpa. We're going to be okay. Don't worry about us. See you in heaven. And with that, Grandpa took his last breath. It was about the best goodbye to someone you love deeply, about the best it could possibly be. And I was reflecting on Grandpa's passing, how that goodbye went with him. And I contrasted that with this poor fellow from Acts chapter 5 named Ananias, right? Where this guy, the last thing he heard was not, we love you, Ananias. Way to go, Ananias. We're going to miss you. And like, it was quite the opposite of that, wasn't it? Just think about the last thing that Ananias heard was, you didn't lie to us, you lied to God, and bam, lights out. Holy cow, that's something, isn't it? And there's some speculation, well, maybe Ananias had some like coincidental heart attack or some brain aneurysm or some such thing. That wasn't it at all. Let me be real plain. God took Ananias' life. God took Ananias' life. And then three or so hours later, along comes Sapphira, Ananias' wife. We don't know, maybe she was at the neighborhood Starbucks waiting for Ananias to show up. They had a date night planned, perhaps, and he doesn't show up. So she's like, well, I better go looking for him. You read the story. I don't need to repeat the whole thing. And she walks right into Peter, and she lies herself right to Peter. And Peter's like, shh, hear that? And she's like, yeah, I do hear that. She says, that's the footsteps Peter says, that's the footsteps of the guys who just took your dead husband out and they're coming for you next. And then she falls over dead just like her husband. It was not a coincidental heart attack. It wasn't a brain aneurysm. God took her life. And it's like this double-barreled whoa kind of story. And you reflect on this whole freakish thing that happens in the first Christian church. And do you notice what happens in that church? 
The text tells us real clearly what goes down. It says, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. And we read that and we're like, well, duh. Seriously, imagine if two people who maybe you're sitting next to right now, fellow church members, were struck dead for a couple of lies. What would happen to us? We'd be all like freaked out. Like, oh my gosh. And it was justified freak out, wasn't it? This fear of telling a lie, the consequences, some of them saw it firsthand, everyone else heard about it. It reverberated across the life of that church for some time. They're going like, you don't want to tell a lie around here. God seems to be real sensitive about the whole lying deal. Bad stuff happens if you lie. And it just buzzed all over the church, all over town. And so then you get to thinking, why in the world would God go to such extremes to communicate his distaste for untruth? Why would he do that? Striking people dead. I got a couple of thoughts. I'm of the opinion that this brand new model church, this example church where God was very, very much on the move, where he was doing amazing, awe-inspiring things, where so many things were going right that they just didn't have a clue what could possibly happen. They didn't get the cost. They didn't understand the consequences. They didn't even begin to grasp the pain that might come crashing down on all their heads if all of a sudden lying and untruth and deception became part of the mix around the life of this brand new church. They just didn't get it. But God did. And he wanted everyone else to get it too, especially in his church where he goes, look, everything you do as a follower of Jesus Christ and everything you say as a follower of Jesus Christ, everything you're about as a follower of Jesus Christ, it all hangs on the strength of your character It all hangs on the strength of your character. In particular, one piece, one part of our character known as trust and honesty. That's it. And you know how very true this is. That when trust is broken because of some deception or some half-truth or some dishonesty, the damage is just often way too much to put back in the box or reassemble, however you want to say it. You've seen it happen. You've seen it happen in businesses. You've seen it happen in marriages. You've seen it happen in families. It can even, God forbid, happen in churches. And the fallout is more often than not just catastrophic. God's dealings, see, with Ananias and Sapphira in the very first Christian church, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to this reality that what God was doing there with them, through them, was so special, so rare, so amazing. It was to be stewarded so carefully because of how God hoped to use them in his unfolding redemptive plan for every person on planet Earth going forward. And that there was no way that he was going to allow dishonesty and lying to screw it up. Not a chance. God's going, the stakes are way too high. The stakes are way too high. God loves you and God loves your neighbors and God loves his church, the bride of Christ, far too much to let it be tanked or wrecked or turned upside down because of lies. The stakes are way too high. So then how do we press onward in the character trait of honesty and truth telling? How do we get more and more about that. I believe our growth in honesty and truth telling begins and ends actually with our own hearts. It starts with us. 
our own hearts being broken in the very same way that God's heart is broken when we lie and when we deceive and when we spin and when we shade the truth. Because see, there's not an inkling of untruth in God. And when our deception, my deception, falls upon the ears of a holy, magnificent, perfect God, it just piles him up. And so if we want to actually root out every last ounce of deception from our lives, I think we actually got to feel, feel right in here something of what God feels when we're dishonest and when we lie and when we spin the truth and when we embellish even some dumb fishing story, we got to feel it to the core of our being. And so I've been experimenting with that of late. I've been asking God to allow me to feel some of what he feels about lying and dishonesty. And I've come to believe that God's more than happy to share those emotions with any of us who ask because he wants so badly to root out any and all sin in our lives. And if that'll help us, he says, have at it. Here you go. And I'm telling you, it's been an incredibly powerful motivator for me to participate just like an inkling with God by feeling just some of his heartbreak that my lying and my deceit can cause. It's almost palpable for me in these days. And you can ask God to let you in on a little bit if you'd like to, where you just say, God, I wanna be all done with the lying and deception thing once and for all. Help me, God, please shed it entirely by, here it is, allowing my heart to break like your heart breaks when I'm even tempted to lie. Like when I get right up to the edge, like just crush me with how it feels. Don't even let me step off the edge. And just fair warning to all of you, like buckle in if you start praying that prayer. Because it's a ride. It's quite a ride. If you were to go over, over to my office right over here on the corner, very corner of my desk, sits a photograph of me fighting a range fire at some dear friend's ranch right out here on the Madison River. It's not a great picture. You can hardly tell it's me. A picture taken a few summers ago with a friend's flip phone camera as he fought the fire right next to me all night long trying to save our friend's houses and barns from utter destruction from this massive range fire. See, what happened was some folks were floating down the Madison River like so many of us like to do, right? It was a hot, dry, early July day. And well, some of the folks floating down the river that day thought it'd be real fun to mix fireworks with their float trip. After all, what could possibly go wrong? Right? Well, as it turns out, their carelessness sparked quite a wildland fire. The same fire that I spent all night fighting, the same fire that destroyed miles and miles of my friend's fences, miles and miles of my friend's neighbor's fences, the same fire that pinned eight of my friend's horses up against a fence corner they had no way out of, costing eight terrific horses their lives. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, a landscape that'll take decades to be fully restored. You can go out and see it for yourself. You notice, you know, and you hear that and you're like, well, what in the world does that have to do with me pressing onward in character and honesty and truth telling? It's this. I believe that if we want to completely eradicate untruth and lies from our lives, If we want to just root it out entirely, then we got to remember the image of that fire, the irreparable damage it caused, and be reminded that our lies and our untruth and our deception causes the very same kind 
of damage. It just does. The only difference is it's not grass and trees and landscapes and fences and horses that get incinerated when we lie. It's people. It's people. Dearly loved people. People who God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for. It's people who get wrecked and incinerated. It's relationships that get wrecked and incinerated. It's businesses and marriages and families and neighbors. And God forbid, sometimes it's even churches, doggone it. Stuff gets toasted when we lie and when we deceive and when we stretch and when we shade and when we spin the truth. Stuff gets toasted. And I say, I don't want to be responsible for inflicting that kind of damage on anyone. I don't want to be responsible for that. And can you just imagine with me for a moment the benefits of just always only ever telling the truth? Can you begin to fathom the benefits? Right, when you lie, what do you have to do? You have to keep all the stories straight, right? What did I tell that person? What did I tell that person? What did I tell that person? And you're like, oh, shoot, I'm lost in the web of deception. But if you're just honest, you never have to worry about keeping the story straight. Because you're just honest. If you're honest, you never have to worry about an uncomfortable knock at your door, an uncomfortable conversation where somebody says, I heard you said. You never have to worry about getting tangled up in any webs of deception. You tell the truth, you know what you do? You build trust by telling the truth. It's like a bank account that accrues. And you tell the truth and you make a deposit. And you tell the truth and you make another deposit. And you tell the truth and you make another deposit. And you lie and you make a withdrawal. And you lie and you make a withdrawal. And you lie and you make a withdrawal. And pretty soon you're underwater. Overdrawn. You build trust versus destroying trust when you tell the truth. Another thing, sometimes truth is hard to say, isn't it? Sometimes truth is just like hard truth in particular. Somebody asks you for honest feedback and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be hard, right? Truth, hard truth, it's bathed in love and prayer and a graciousness of spirit. That kind of truth, even though it's difficult, you know what happens when you speak it? You magnify and you glorify and you exalt our great God who himself is the definition of truth. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the definition of truth. And friends, the benefits of truth-telling, the benefits of honesty, they're just endless on and on and on. They go. Could I ask you to take your stuff and set it aside, please, and just move into a posture of prayer and reflection with the Lord? And as you do that, could I just challenge you? Why wouldn't you just make this the day that you resolve with the help of God himself? Like the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you to help you stop all forms of dishonesty and deceit and lying and spin and the shading of the truth. Why wouldn't you today just drive a stake in the ground with the Lord and say, this is the day. I quit lying. I quit spinning. I quit deceiving. I quit shading the truth. This is my day. 
power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to help you do just that. You're like, man, I've tried. And Jesus says, let me help you. This isn't just about self-improvement. This isn't just about you trying harder, you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, even taller. That's not it. It's the power of God that Jesus Christ avails to you. And he'll help you. He promises to help you. And then maybe there's some of you today who find yourself in the spot that King David of Israel found himself just at the end of yourself, overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's love and grace and forgiveness and pursuit of you, and it's just like right there staring you straight in the face. And if that's you, why wouldn't this be your day that you come home to Jesus? Why wouldn't this be your day that you come back home to Jesus? If that's you, I invite you right where you are to pray with me. Just say, Jesus, I get it. I'm with David. I'm a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And Jesus, you're it. You're the only one who can save me from my sin. And so by faith, I receive your gift of salvation. Please, Jesus Christ, be my savior once and for all. Here's me, all of me, trusting you with my everything. God, thank you so, so much for being the epitome, the model of everything that truth is. That there's not an ounce of deception in you, God. And that you invite and you call and you challenge us to the very same thing. And you wouldn't lay the challenge before us if we couldn't actually live it out. You say, it's right there. You avail your power to us. And so Jesus, we're taking you up on your offer. Help us be honest. Help us be truth tellers. Put away, God, any and all deception and spin and have to, anything. Help us put it away so that you would be seen in us, King Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.